Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature the novelist Richard Powers. Powers is a writer whose work is difficult to define. It is literary fiction based in a kind of realism, but with elements of science fiction and fantasy and highly original structural elements that keep readers a little off balance. His work calls to mind Oregon's own Ursula K. Le Guin. Powers won the National Book Award in 2006 for his novel, The Echo Maker. He is perhaps best known for his magisterial, Pulitzer Prize-winning, and internationally best-selling 2019 novel, The Overstory. He joined us to talk about his book, Bewilderment, which was published in the fall of 2021. In this talk, called Easy Travel to Other Planets, which Powers describes as a kind of mini-autobiography, he recalls the facts and circumstances of his childhood, but also the life of his imagination as he grew up. The talk dives right to the heart of Powers' craft, the mysterious origins of stories, and how Powers was shaped as an artist by watching the moon landing at the age of five. After the live lecture, some audience members described it as one of the best Portland Arts and Lectures evenings they had ever attended. High praise for a series that's been presenting for more than 35 years. So here's Richard Powers speaking live at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in April 2022. Hello, Portland. So readers will often ask, where did a book come from? And writers will often just lie. <laughs> and you can't blame them, well, at least uh, novelists, because when you work on a scale the size of a novel, large canvas involving long time periods, multiple people, there are so many triggers, so many uh, proximal uh, inspirations. And behind each one of them are many, many more upstream uh, that caused them to come about. And when people ask me that question, where did that book come from? I think about all those tributaries going up into this immense watershed. And I just want to say, I was born in Chicago in 1950. It's a challenge to find any clean way of talking about the genesis of something as intricate and involved as a novel. When the commission came in tonight for something running about 50 minutes, I thought, well, I'm gonna give that a stab. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to tell the story about where bewilderment came from. And sure enough, it turned into a miniature autobiography, so. It's, it's only 12 pages long, uh, so it does have that going for it. Uh, 
It's called Easy Travel to Other Planets. Back when I was born, the Earth had only one moon. But by the time I turned five months old, it had twice as many. That was the year when my species, creatures I'll tell you about in a minute, figured out how to escape gravity and send one of their most impressive artworks into permanent orbit. It was quite a moment. For the first time in four and a half billion years, the planet had an entirely new kind of object in the sky. I grew up in a country racing into space. Sputnik made a special impression on my father, who had always dreamed of being a scientist but couldn't hack the math. My dad believed from my earliest days that I would succeed where he had failed. That seemed right to me too. At the age of seven, in the attic bedroom of my family's brick house on the north side of Chicago, I read the classic kids book he gave me, You Will Go to the Moon. Of all the other stories I devoured back then, the one about befriending a wild raccoon, or the one about a bracelet falling inside a donut machine and being baked into the product, you will go to the moon seemed by far the most plausible. <laughs> I was my father's son, and I grew up committed to the new frontier. Easy travel to other planets. It all felt so imminent. Of course I would go to the moon. We all would. The whole parade of human history pointed toward it. My part in that outward journey was inevitable. In the meantime, I prepared myself, standing on the various scales at the Adler Planetarium to see how much I would weigh on Mercury, Jupiter, or Mars. Space was where we'd solve all the problems we'd never quite managed to square away here on this planet's surface. My child's pantheism merged with my father's endless faith in human progress. By the time I turned nine, nothing was more obvious to me. Strange new worlds were within our reach. Humankind would explore them forever, and they would be full of the most astonishing kinds of life. The stories that I loved back then often invoked the year 2000. That date promised to be a transforming threshold. By 2000, we'd have fusion-powered rockets. By 2000, we'd be farming in space colonies mounted in geosynchronous orbits. By 2000, we'd hear from someone out there. I did the math. 2,000 minus 1,957 was 43. The number crushed me. Surviving to the age of 43 was a science fiction too outrageous to wrap my head around. Even if I made it that far, I'd be too decrepit to go anywhere. Still, each year, my reading carried me farther away from Earth. I didn't always distinguish between fact and speculations. In my child's mind, the golden guide account of swirling superstorms on Venus 
wasn't entirely distinct from astounding stories about 10-foot-tall reptiles who somehow spoke English. Every book I read, whether fact or fiction, was itself another planet. And each new word that I picked up from my reading came from a language that had once been Martian before it became mine. I watched the moon landing as a 12-year-old in Bangkok, Thailand. My father had taken a job there, a last adventure in middle age as far away from Chicago as he could get. Our family saw the touchdown together on a black and white set in a house on a clong in Bangkapi. The grainy, almost indecipherable transmission from space showed two buoyant people in bulky suits and helmets bobbing around on a dusty plain, making footprints that would last forever. We watched until the broadcast ended and our television reverted to an old episode of I Love Lucy dubbed into Thai. I returned to the planet that I still half expected to leave forever someday. It never occurred to me, even when I moved back to the States at the age of 15, that I would die before human beings again set foot on any new or further place. I kept reading planetary rom romances all the way through high school. The genre was just then reaching its zenith. Pangborn, Vance, Sturgeon, Brunner, James Tiptree Jr., Ursula Le Guin, and so many others were perfecting an art that reached back a century and more to the island romances of Melville, who in turn had gotten the form from Defoe a century and a half before him. But there was a new reason why distant planets had become so popular. By the time I graduated from high school in 1975, humans had taken dominion over the earth and subdued every inch of it. Going where no one had gone before was now impossible. But I, along with all those science fiction authors I still loved, could not shake the wanderlust that haunted the legacy hardware of my brain. Sometime between starting college as a physics major and ejecting four and a half years later with a master's degree in literature, <laughs> I gave up space travel. In the interim, I'd signed on to the idea, pretty much universal among my professors and fellow students of literature, that we humans were the only game in town, and it was no good pretending otherwise. I had lost all use for science fiction. Any stories that placed engineering above psychology seemed crude at best and at worst juvenile and colonialist. Real literature meant stories about real people trapped in close quarters with each other in no particular place beyond the social world. The plots I came to value paid no attention to anything outside the self-made mazes of the self. I put away science fiction, along with my other childish things. And I began writing stories of my own, stories that, without my realizing it, 
had assimilated the prevailing literary idea that human beings would never go anywhere new again, that we were here in an empty universe with only ourselves to contemplate. Even the astronomers in those years probably wouldn't have disagreed. Many of them believed that they would die before anyone confirmed the existence of a single new planet. At that time, anything more than brief poetic speculation about life beyond Earth was courting professional suicide. The first planet outside our solar system was confirmed when I was 35. By then, I was so committed to literary fiction's human exceptionalism that I paid no attention to the news. I barely registered the landmark that life on Earth had just passed. A few self-replicating molecules, after four billion years of random walks shaped by nothing more than trial and error, had learned how to measure the infinitesimal dimming of light from trillions of miles away with enough precision to infer the transits of minuscule invisible planets passing in front of their obliterating stars. It was like detecting a fly walking across a streetlight in a distant city. We did that. We earthlings. Before long, serious scientists were publishing papers in peer-reviewed journals about the kinds of life that might exist under miles of ice on the moons of Jupiter or in the hot mantles of rogue planets that had no stars. But I didn't get the memo. I had graduated from outer space, and where I now lived, there was no other place but here and no other occupants but us. It would be years before I realized how much life in the universe had changed while I was away. I wasn't alone in missing the story. For many people on Earth, and certainly for most humanists, nothing at all had changed following the revolution in astronomy and the birth of astrobiology. The basic principles of humanism insist that nothing science could discover would ever have much bearing on what we humans call the meaning of life. Frederick Jameson once famously declared, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. Here's a corollary. It would pretty much take an interplanetary invasion to challenge the entrenched belief that we humans are sovereign, autonomous creatures who make meaning entirely by and for ourselves. But the planets kept coming. Almost overnight, there were hundreds. And soon enough, with the launch of new tools, there were thousands more. My childhood reading had had it exactly backwards. I would never go to the moon. But space would eventually come and get me. At 36, I befriended the nine-year-old son of a colleague of mine. Today, we would call Declan neurodivergent. Back then, we didn't have the word. The term would have sounded very SF to me. Declan traveled to planets all the time. 
When I was his age, I'd had rockets and books about outer space. My friend Declan had infinite inner space in Nintendo. Declan often used to ask a favorite question. Are you for real? He used the question to ask all kinds of different things at different times. But mostly he asked it when the edge between the literal and the figurative was giving him trouble. When he couldn't tell what was true and what was just grown-ups saying more crap. Wait, wait, could something like that really happen? Are you serious? Or is this just more adult silliness? One day, Declan and I were discussing his favorite movie franchise, Star Wars. He'd seen the films more times than he could count. As we compared notes, one thing led to another. I don't remember how we got there, but I made the mistake of telling Declan that Mars, the for real Mars, might have been filled with life once. Only something happened and it lost its water and atmosphere. As soon as I told him, Declan hunched up and got quiet. He felt his cheek with the back of one hand and he turned his face away. I thought he was about to break into tears. When he asked his habitual question, it sounded small and broken. Are you for real? I told him, yes, I was for real. It was true what happened to Mars. Then Declan asked, could that happen to Earth too? I told him, no. I said that Earth was safe, that Earth would always be alive, wet, green, and blue. Even someone who has never had children of his own knows when to lie to one. By that point in my own story, I was halfway through my expected lifetime. And if I wasn't quite lost in a darkling wood, I had reached a conclusion about life on Earth. I believed then what a lot of intelligent people conclude. It seemed to me that there was something inherently wrong with Homo sapiens, that we suffered from some congenital defect, a built-in, incurable, sadistic impulse toward domination that doomed us to failure, along with 99% of Earth's other experiments that had already gone extinct. As E.O. Wilson memorably put it, we possess godlike technologies but are stuck in medieval institutions while being steered around by Paleolithic hardware. That wasn't a formula for long-term success. As I saw it back then, in early middle age, no story was ever going to save us from ourselves. Now, at 64, I see I couldn't have been more wrong. 20 more years would pass before I glimpsed an explanation more in keeping with the evidence. Insanity wasn't in our genes. We humans had gone off the rails because our culture had lost its source of external significance. We were so completely colonized by the belief that all meaning came down to economics and private consumption that it no longer even felt like a belief. We'd forgotten the fact that, in Gaylord Nelson's great phrase, the economy 
is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment and not the other way around. On a planet perfectly built for life, a single animal had concluded that it could exploit all the planet's ecosystems to its own ends. This animal had devoted itself to the idea that it lies outside ecology altogether, that it could make a go of things all by itself. This animal was convinced that it wasn't even an animal, not for real. It would take another two decades for me to learn the right answer to Declan's question. Our willingness to dismantle the greatest imaginable place in the universe for life results from the fact that very few of us live here. We had come to see the planet as a collection of exchangeable commodities reduced to their use value. We'd forgotten what every indigenous community and every human is born intuiting. Earth was alive and full of unthinkable agency. Every bit of Sol 3 was busy pumping out more meaning than any of us could need. There were stories all around, backyard pantheisms that were wild and surprising and powerful enough to save us from the black hole of the self. Stories you might tell a child of any age, not you will go to the moon. You can land on Earth. But I didn't learn any of that in time to help my friend Declan. When the bottom dropped out for me at the age of 55, the only thing strong enough to relieve a constant sense of pointlessness and dread was a walk in the woods. I retired from my day job and for five years, I learned and wrote about trees. I spent all my time with them, in books or for real. My family and friends worried about me, but I was learning the wildest things. Trees communicated with one another over the air. They shared resources through enormous underground networks of fungi, even across the species barrier. They domesticated insects and prepared the soil for their young. They remembered and sacrificed and cooperated and socialized. They were wilder than any extraterrestrial species that I'd ever read about in my youth. Discoveries were coming in from all over, building on each other and changing the way we think about evolution. Survival of the fittest meant those best adapted to their environment. But environment, always and everywhere, meant other living things. The fittest were not the greatest competitors. They were the best at exploiting this endless experiment in ever more ingenious forms of co collaboration. I was 62, 62 when the virus hit. Something about the early days of quarantine felt weirdly familiar. And it took me a while to remember why. I had read about them when I was 16 in a science fiction novel called The Andromeda Strain. That book spawned half a century of stories about runaway pathogens, 
But of course, when deadly contagion finally covered the globe, it played out differently from anything that fiction predicted. For starters, humanity did not unite around the lethal outside threat that altered everything about life on this weakened planet. Just the opposite. The virus managed to take the warring camps of my species and further rupture them. It wasn't the SF authors of my youth who best captured the alien quality of life under COVID-19. It was the poet of my young adulthood, Philip Larkin, in his nine-line ode spoken by a man addressing the corpses of rabbits as he cleans them out of a meadow following an outbreak of myxomatosis. Caught in the center of a soundless field, while hot, inexplicable hours go by, what trap is this? Where were its teeth concealed? You seem to ask. I make a sharp reply and clean my stick. I'm glad I can't explain just in what jaws you were to separate. You may have thought things would come right again if you could only keep quite still and wait. For a year and a half, we did just that, kept still and waited as the inexplicable hours went by, hoping that things would come right again. The word for it was otherworldly. Every day I followed the spiking count of the sick and the dead. Hundreds of millions across the globe lost their jobs or were cut off from their livelihoods. But I might as well have been living on another planet secluded in the dense forests of southern Appalachia. For a lifelong introvert, enforced isolation felt like getting thrown into the world's best briar patch. <laughs> Great Smoky Mountains National Park in my backyard got its first real respite from Homo sapiens in centuries. As the humans stayed away, the forests put out one of the most extravagant springs in memory. My days were a mix of survivor's guilt and returner's joy. I dabbled in survivalism. I invested in an off-grid power station and solar cells. I started an indoor hydroponics farm so I could have daily greens without risking the grocery store in a town where wearing a mask could provoke a fist fight. My only company was a robotic vacuum cleaner I called Isaac A. <laughs> the days felt a little like Bruce Dern in Silent Running or Matt Damon in The Martian right before things really went south. And all that spring, I walked in the woods. One overcast day on a trail that tracked a steep mountain stream I felt a small boy sitting on my shoulders, as if he'd grown tired of hiking and I had to carry him. Before long, he was walking alongside me, seeing what I was seeing, taking in the heron and the cascades and the carpets of fringed phacelia and ruinemony. He seemed to be asking something. The vague impression passed quickly, but it didn't take much writer's imagination for me to know just what that interdimensional visitor was asking. It was the same thing I wanted to ask him.
It hit me. This child was seeing something else in the pandemic landscape. Something slower and larger and farther away. Maybe he was neurodivergent too. An earnest nine-year-old come back from the dead to ask a very old question. I'd hiked down that same river trail years before with a friend who had taught me how to bird. She and I had once tracked a fabulous orange, black, and white creature, finally getting a good glimpse of it at the same moment. I groaned that it was only a robin. She replied without lowering her binoculars, the robin is my favorite bird. It seemed to me that this visitor, who had disappeared before I got a good look at him, might be named Robin. And his question was one I was afraid to answer. Are you for real? Is this really happening? Will half of all Earth species be extinct by the time I'm your age? I was old enough to have outlived most of what I'd believed about life. I'd written a dozen novels, far more than I ever imagined back when I was starting out. A few of those books flirted with SF. Over the course of four decades, I'd written about conscious artificial intelligences, telekinetic virtual realities, and communal talking trees. Now, after many books where most of the main characters were as childless as I was, I was about to venture into hardcore speculative fiction, what it felt like to be a father. Throughout that year of self-isolation, those two people were my only company. Robin, a nine-year-old boy full of terrified questions, and Theo, a 39-year-old astrobiologist and planet hunter with no good answers. I saw how things stood. The pain and rage that began with the death of Robin's mother two years before the start of the story had come to a head. All the other humans in Robin's life want to cure his problematic behavior and normalize his differences. But his father, Theo, is determined to do anything, anything to protect his son and keep him safe on a planet that has lost all safety. Every day for a year, I lived in quarantine with those two lost boys. The deeper into the story I got, the more it seemed that the frightened, neurodivergent boy might in fact be the past me, while the 63-year-old present-day me was quickly turning into my own real-life father, the man who had been so set on helping his son to escape somewhere, to the moon or Mars or anyway, anywhere far away from here. Writing the overstory had opened my eyes to a basic truth. More than any commodity that we humans chase after, more than prestige or money, more than power, more than sex or possessions, or a longer, healthier life, more than peace, even more than convenience, we want meaning. Without meaning, all the rest is like drinking salt water. It just makes us thirstier. Something in us is desperate for connection to something out there. 
an adventure beyond ourselves. Well, we had such a connection. We were part of the largest, wildest adventure that the universe had ever gotten up to. But we'd forgotten. I found myself telling a story about a father and son helping each other to remember. I built the book around a new technique I'd read about a few years before called decoded neurofeedback. In DECNEF, a person's brain is imaged by magnetic resonance while she performs a cognitive task or enters a particular emotional state. Later, a second person, also scanned in real time, is coached to approximate the patterns in the original person's brain. Think of it as a high-tech game of blind man's bluff, where real-time cues train one person to emulate the precise brain state of another. When I first read about this technique, it gave me goosebumps. I thought, that's an empathy machine. It could connect one person directly to the emotions of another. It could train a person into the state of interbeing that reading and writing and all art struggle to invoke. Here it was at last, faster than light traveled to other planets. I set out to see if an empathy machine could calm my Robin and reconnect him to his mother, whose death had left him so angry and afraid. But outside my treehouse in that plague year, anger, fear, hatred, paranoia, and grievance were traveling faster than any empathy could follow. Children, separated from their parents, some with COVID, were crowded into jails on the southern border. A black woman was killed when police broke into her apartment by mistake. A black man was killed for allegedly passing a counterfeit $20 bill. White supremacists and QAnon theorists were amassing millions of likes and retweets. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram were spreading disinformation faster than the wildfire spread of the virus. The Department of Education promoted alternatives to science. The US left the Paris Accords. And among all the other bewilderments, 60 years of hard-won environmental legislation were being dismantled almost without notice. All summer long, I kept hearing those lines by Yeats in his meditations in a time of civil war. We had fed the heart on fantasies, the hearts grown brutal from the fair. More substance in our enmities than in our love, oh, honeybees, come build in the empty house of the stair. How could I possibly keep my nine-year-old safe in such a place? Even if the empathy machine worked, it would leave him completely unequipped for life on planet Earth. In this world, two vicious stories have merged into one lethal one. The first is that time, place, season, chance, and all other species are impediments that must either be monetized or eliminated. The second insists that meaning resides entirely in the self. Put those two stories together and you get a planet that would soon be good for little except escaping. 
Inside the alternative world I was making, I watched Theo making worlds of his own. He offers Robin the possibility of other Earths. Every few nights, in place of a bedtime story, father and son travel around the universe, stopping to survey one of the new exoplanets that Theo's science has discovered. They visit worlds without land, without a moon, without seasons, without a change between day and night, without a star to orbit. Everywhere on these travels, Robin's question is a simple one. The same question Enrico Fermi asked at lunch back in 1950, when the size and the age of the cosmos were becoming clear. If the universe has been around three times longer than the Earth, and if there are a hundred billion galaxies, each with hundreds of billions of stars, and each of those stars had on average several planets, then where is everybody? The wildest kinds of life should be everywhere, buzzing through our galactic neighborhood and self-replicating probes. In my book, the answer dawns slowly on father and son. They are. Alien life does exist. And it's all around, as strange as anything speculative fiction has ever dreamt up. We're surrounded by beings whose million kinds of intelligence are so different from our own that it would be a lifetime's meaningful work to decode just a part of what they know. There might be nothing at all out there, no civilizations to contact beyond this place. We might hear nothing from space forever but the great silence. We might point the telescopes in every direction forever and never turn up a single planet remotely as blessed as Earth. But we would still have this infinitely unlikely, infinitely intelligent, infinitely interwoven place to keep us company and give us work. Meaning starts here in the long rehabilitation the future requires. There is endless purpose in learning to love what is so richly not us, in giving what is more than human the sanctity that right now we only give ourselves. For we humans are a wholly owned subsidiary of life and not the other way around. I wrote through the fall and winter, through the massive demonstrations the four million deaths from the virus across the globe, the agonizing election, the all-out wars on truth, and the storming of the Capitol. I didn't know which story would end first, mine or democracy's. I wrote until Theo and Robin landed back on Earth. Then, when I'd made all my edits, when all my words had said as fast as concrete and I could do nothing further with them, I had one more interdimensional visit. This one from a pair of people sitting out under the stars, just outside the frame of my story. Another father was busy with another troubled son, but in another galaxy far, far away. I couldn't make out their shapes or colors or texture, 
So different were they from anything I could dream up. But the father was trying to comfort his son with a fable of an imaginary place, luckier than theirs. He invents a planet whose axial tilt and perfect size and distance from its star and stabilizing moon and sheltering gas giant neighbors whose tectonic plates and ample water and blanket of atmosphere and countless other insanely lucky convergences result in mountains and rivers, savannas, forests, chaparral, deserts, taiga and tundra, prairies and reefs, habitats the boy can't begin to fathom, each one pumping out species beyond counting. The sun grabs whatever passes for the man, passes on the man for an arm. Maybe his father's attempts at false comfort enrage him. Or maybe he's laughing at the outrageous fable. He wants to be clear-eyed, mature, tough-minded. He wants to say, come on, Dad, that's crazy talk, science fiction. But he's only a child. So, in what passes for speech, half terrified, half wild with possibility, he asks, is that for real? Was it for real? <laughs> um, if you've got questions, please uh, write them on your question card now and um, hand them to tonight's ushers. We'll get them up to the stage as fast as we can and get through as many as we can get to. This person would like to know, why did you, I think they just missed, they wish you were lived here. Why did you move to the Smoky Mountains away from the Cascades and Northern California? Yeah. What drew you there? I was teaching at Stanford. Um, could just stop there, I guess. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, you know, it's, it's odd. Silicon Valley is a weird place, you know. And you know, when you can walk to Apple headquarters and Google headquarters and Intel headquarters and Facebook headquarters, you're living in the culture that, you know, it has created the present and is very busy creating the future. Uh, and, and there's a weird kind of techno-sublime, techno-optimism that, that infuses the entire valley. It's like, I would go to dinner parties, you know, and I, I was suffering from a medical problem at the time that I thought was going to be a lot more serious than it turned out to be. But, you know, my, my friends were saying, just hold on a little bit longer because in a few more years, we're going to solve death, you know. You know, we're going to get, we're going to smooth over that design flaw, right? Uh, we'll do another revision. Um, I, I'm only slightly exaggerating. There is an odd kind of transhumanism that, that permeates a lot of the valley. And I would escape it by going up into the, in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and that's where I ran into the Redwoods, and that's where I ran into this escapee uh, in the recovering Redwood forests that made me realize what those mountains had looked like before we got to them. And that's where the overstory started. And I began to read compulsively about trees. I ended up reading uh, over 120 books about trees. I'm still reading them. I'm, I'm still rewriting the book in my head. You know, the, um, but I kept reading that 
if you wanted to see what eastern old growth looked like, what, what broadleaf old growth forest on North America looks like, the best place to go is the Smokies because it's the largest contiguous remaining chunk of old growth uh, on the continent in, in the east. They're not much. I mean, there's 120,000 acres in the, in the park, and there's a little bit more in the outlying areas, uh, much of which is, is federal protected land. I th I'm an Easterner. I thought I knew what an Eastern forest looked like, but I kept reading that, no, there's something different about the uncut stuff. And, you know, you know this from here, you know, uh, the numbers in, in the East are even worse than the West. You know, only something like two to 5% of, of the forest of North America remain in, in, in their, you know, pre-logged condition. I went out to the Smokies on a three-day uh, backcountry camping excursion, and I walked up, you know, through the recovering forest, and I swear, you know, to, to, to go from a 100-year-old forest to a 10,000-year-old forest in a few steps, you know, to cross over that threshold, I've compared it to that moment in Wizard of Oz where it goes from black and white to color, you know. It smells different, it sounds different, the light is different. It, you can see how massively the species count goes up. And instead of looking at a lot of, you know, same age, same thickness trees, you see everything's from, you know, big open patches where the last old one fell and tore out the canopy to, you know, these enormous, I mean, imagine a broadleaf tree that's 30 feet in circumference, you know. Um, you know, these, these, these huge uh, tulip poplars and, you know, everything was so compelling. And I felt this is the first time that I've ever seen my patrimony. You know, most of the continent east of the Mississippi would have looked something like this. And it, it was such a feeling, you know, and it did something to me. And I was still thinking about it almost a year later when I, you know, when I had gone back uh, uh, to California. And I thought, wow, you know, if it's, if it's still obsessing me, it's got to say something. So I went back and I bought a house and I've been living there ever since. So it's really the overstory that moved me to the Smokies. It's an amazing place. Uh, you know, people often say it's the most biodiverse area of its size outside of the tropics. And inside the park, there are more species of trees than there are in all of Europe from Portugal to the Baltic states. Of course, that's nothing compared to the tropics where you can get 600 species of trees in a few hectares. But, you know, for, for living here, it's, it's a place where the, you know, there's an endless adventure in all seasons. Uh, and, I, and I still, after, after living there for five years, I still learn something about the neighbors every single day. Here's um, a very specific question about bewilderment. Why was it necessary for the narrator to raise doubt about the paternity of Robin? What was, why was that important to the plot? I'm not sure it's profoundly important for the plot, but I think it is an anxiety that we males run around with, right? I think it's, uh, uh, there, there's an odd, or there's a, there, there are profound asymmetries, obviously, um, that have uh, behavioral consequences but I also think it's just Theo, you know. It, I, I really loved writing a book 
that was entirely a first-person performance. You know, after the overstory where I had, you know, almost a dozen major characters, and, and each section of that book was written in very different literary style depending on who the focalizer was. And it was a kind of symphonic, you know, polyphonic way of creating a big uh, time scale, and, you know, a big cast, of, of, a very kind of sprawling narrative. And after I was done with that, I, I just thought, let me see if I can carry some of those same preoccupations into a much smaller, a more intimate place. Let me, let me go from writing a symphony to writing a piano sonata, you know, with just these two guys. And of course, the, as I said in the piece, the, the pandemic kind of forced my hand on this to some extent. Couldn't travel, couldn't interview people, couldn't, couldn't visit a lot of venues that, like I ordinarily uh, try to do when I'm researching a novel. But to have the book entirely told by Theo, who can't, who knows he can't ever get into the locked room of his son, right, is to do this odd reflection on a narrator who doesn't really want to reveal a lot about himself, but does inadvertently. And to me, that's the beauty of first person. You know, it's like, let me tell you about my friend Jay Gatsby. Well, it's always, you know, the, the person who's doing the representing is giving himself away by those representations. And that's what Theo does. You know, when he gets anxious about his son and whether or not his son is autistic or whatever the diagnoses for, for the, the boy happen to be, you know, is he, uh, is he attention deficit? Is he, you know, does he have some other kind of compulsive disorder? You notice when he tells his own story, he almost entirely skips over his own boyhood. And you can just see these tiny clues like he was a very strange boy too, right? And, and isn't entirely comfortable, you know, reflecting on that. And I think his, you know, his post-mortem anxiety about his wife is just another one of those ways of saying, you know, of, of Theo revealing himself without necessarily, you know, doing self-analysis. I don't know who this boy is. I don't know who that woman was. I don't know who I am. But here we are, all together on Earth in this provisional family, you know. And even if it, even if I do have this anxiety about the relatedness, the genetic relatedness to the son, it makes absolutely no difference. I am that boy's father. You just talked about those two books being in relationship to each other, right? Echoing. What about the Echo Maker? Because I thought about that a lot reading yeah. Bewilderment. And yeah. I wondered. Do you, did you, were you thinking about that book when you, you wrote this book? Or what do you think, is there a relationship there? I, I often do, you know, narrate my own writer's history um, as a kind of discontinuous break. You know, 11 books, and then this belated discovery at the age of 55 that I'd missed most of the story of what it means to be alive in this place. And then having this kind of late day conversion that now I feel is going to take me through the finish line, you know, where I want to figure out ways of telling books, of telling stories in a very old style. As Robin Wall Kimmerer says, I want to learn how to become indigenous again, you know, and, and to bring in uh, uh, the non-human and our relationship to the more than human as a central feature of the story, as it always was in most literatures of the world, in most places before Western culture got to them. You know. 
But the truth is, when I do look back, and you know, the, it is true, when I look at Echo, Echo Maker and say, I was blundering toward this in the, in the early 2000s. I just didn't know it yet. You know? you know, it won the National Book Award, I think. I don't know if you were blundering. <laughs> <laughs> just a, it's amazing how modest you are, but I just feel like I should say, say that. <laughs> I don't know. What does the word wild mean to you? Which, I mean, it's a, it's a germane question because it's in the title of this book. And, you know, you see that word and you, you don't immediately see the etymological derivation of the word. You see confusion and you see disorientation. You also see amazement and astonishment. But ultimately, in the etymology of the word, you see a returning to the wild bewilderment. The true scholars of human exceptionalism are quick to point out that the idea of wilderness is itself a little problematic because there is no part of the globe that we haven't been a part of ecologically for a long time. We've left our mark everywhere in, in, in ways from subtle to drastic. So even the invention of wilderness, the invention of nature as something separate from us may also be symptomatic of that human exceptionalism. We need, we need better ways of thinking of, of, of that interdependence. So I don't, I, 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 I don't want to romanticize the notion of the wild, but for, for me, the wild is that condition of interbeing, of presence, that understands how beholden it is to place and everything else in that place. That's, to me, you know, to, to be bewildered is to land back on Earth, as, as Bruno Latour would say, to, to understand that there is no way of talking about us or our stories, where we've been or where we're going, without being a part of that interdependent, wild community, you know, of having, of putting ourselves into the neighborhood, not as something above it, but just one of, of the many, many agents that make place. There's a lot of questions here about what gives you hope. It's a pretty heavy, pretty challenging subject and a pretty challenging time. Uh, but you're doing something incredibly hopeful, which is writing books about it. Um, what gives you that energy and that hope? Whew. When people ask me, do I have hope? I always immediately say, hope for what? You know? And of course, in the question, it's, it's inescapable that the question should have in it a deep anxiety about everything that we're clearly losing, right? But the, the secret anxiety is usually the fear of not knowing how to, how to continue to engage a future where the only culture, the only configuration of meaning that we know is obviously not going to last, right? And, and so if I say, do you mean hope that we in this culture can get over the finish line with all our stuff? I say, no, I don't have any hope for that. <laughs> but maybe, maybe that's not the right thing to hope for, right? The 
deeper question is, is there a future for us? And you know, it's clear, it's clear that the current configuration, the way that we live, is not long for this world. It's not clear how long we will be for this world because you know, the, the incredible ingenuity and, and the leverage of, of everything that we've been able to discover and all of the, the technologies that so massively prosthetically extend our abilities, that's a lot. And you, know, you, you can read very, very intelligent books that explore that hope, the hope that human beings can continue to live meaningfully in the world. Um, Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future is an interesting recent book uh, that really works out in a kind of systematic way what it would take for, for us to stabilize and move forward. Um, but to me, the, the real definition of hope is whatever happens to us, whatever that last term in the Drake equation is, can we hope for a meaningful return to an engagement with the living world. Why not, right? And, and once we give up hoping for immortality, for total control and domination, for more stuff, once we give up all those hopes and, and start to place our hope in this magnificent ramifying uh, experiment that has survived many mass extinctions, once we begin to make kin real kinship with things beyond us, then we have infinite meaningful work, right? You know, then we can spend, as your great native poet and prophet says, then we can spend every day always coming home. That was Richard Powers from Portland Arts and Lectures in April, 2022. This has been Literary Arts, the archive project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. Literary Arts is a partner of Pop-Up Magazine, an unforgettable live multimedia storytelling experience happening at Revolution Hall, June 4th. To learn more about their Portland visit, go to popupmagazine.com. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for radio and podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson, and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.